Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Well, good morning. Do keep Acts chapter 8 open in front of you. And uh, we're going to be looking at that together. It's lovely to be uh, here with you this morning. And um, uh, I'm going to pray for us as we come to look at that. So let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for a great gospel recorded in your word the Bible. Pray that as we come to look at this chapter of Acts, you would help me to speak it clearly and faithfully as I ought, and help us to hear it clearly and to believe and repent. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Well, this morning we're continuing our series looking at the book of Acts. Uh, Two weeks ago, we were in Acts chapter 7, and uh, we're carrying on now with Acts chapter 8. But the um, The issue that I want to think about this morning is an issue that is really um, raised by um, the tragedy that happened in Manchester this week. Uh, It's an issue that's also raised by the terrible things that have been happening to Coptic Christians in Egypt this week. Uh, It's not one of the obvious uh, questions. um, Why would something like this happen? Or what does it say about God that something like this could happen in our world? Uh, those are excellent questions, and the Bible has lots to say about them. Um, if, uh, if you're asking one of those questions, I'd love to talk to you about that after the service. But the issue that I want to think about this morning is one that's raised by Acts chapter 8, that comes out of the chapter, and yet one that touches um, on uh, and is raised by tragedies like the one that happened this week in Manchester. It's the issue of um, uh, the forgiveness of God. Are there limits to the forgiveness and presence of God through the gospel? Are there limits to the forgiveness and presence of God through the gospel? Uh, Forgiveness is always a big topic after um, something like the attack in Manchester. Um, The papers talk about this issue of whether families and victims can um, bring themselves to forgive an attacker. And um, uh, if, like me, you are reading this week uh, that the last words of of the Manchester bomber um, to his mother were, forgive me. And so forgiveness is a big issue uh, in uh, this whole area. Uh, And as Christians, maybe we say, well, it's obvious. We know that God is a God of grace and mercy, and so we know what we want to say about the forgiveness of God. But I want to ask you to think deeply with me for a moment and to be honest. Because if we're honest, uh, aren't there people that we know that we think are more likely to become a Christian I can picture them at church and um, they seem like the sort of person who would be likely to become a Christian and others, if we're honest, that we know who we just think, well, they just seem too hard and too far off from the gospel. Yes, maybe they're a passionate follower of another religion or an aggressive atheist or someone who just seems utterly indifferent to spiritual things. Maybe we look at the media and it's someone who shows the sort of hard-hearted and callous disregard for human life that we saw this week in Manchester. And if we're honest, in the depth of our hearts, do we not think that some people are just more, more likely to be won by the gospel? And there are others who just seem too hard and too far off. Well now, um, at the risk of stating the obvious, Acts chapter 8 comes after Acts chapter 7. And uh, you can see already that my theological education was not wasted. (laughs) In Acts chapter 7, two weeks ago, we were seeing one key truth, really, and it's summed up in verses 55 and 56 of Acts 7. 
Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Uh, Stephen defending himself against the Jewish religious authorities. Um, They had um, got the um, presence of God in a place, the temple. They had special people and special sacrifices. And to go to God, you had to come to them. And the burden of Stephen's speech, the burden of Acts chapter 7 is summed up there. That heaven has been opened and Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is enthroned is by the right hand of God. And so everything that the temple used to point towards is found in Jesus. There are no more special people, no more special places, no more special sacrifices. What counts is knowing Jesus Christ through the gospel. We find forgiveness and closeness with God and the rule of God by knowing Jesus Christ through the gospel. Jesus is in heaven, heaven is open, and we come to him through the gospel. And Acts chapter 8 really is the outworking of that truth in practice. Um, If you like, Acts 8 is sort of like the application of the principle of Acts chapter 7. Uh, It's a chapter full of the gospel being proclaimed widely. Um, Verse 4, they were scattered preaching the word wherever they went. And again, at the end of my section in um, verse 25, when they testified and proclaimed the word of the Lord, um, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. Jesus is enthroned, heaven is open, and anyone can come to know God and experience his presence through the gospel through receiving Jesus Christ. Now, three implications of that that we see in our chapter this morning. And the first is this. The gospel is for everywhere without exception. The gospel is for everywhere without exception. There are no boundaries on where the gospel can go. There are no limits to where the kingdom of God can grow and flourish as people accept Jesus. No places that are too hard and no people... No people who are too unlikely for the reach of Jesus' gospel. Uh, Verse 1, have a look at that down with me again. Um, On that day, a great persecution uh, broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered through Judea and Samaria. Now, this looks like a disaster for the church, that just as people have been coming to know God through the gospel of Jesus Christ in Jerusalem, um, things have hardened against them. The apostles are stuck in Jerusalem, and everyone else has been kicked out and scattered. And yet, as is so often... Jesus, the enthroned one, uses the persecution and opposition of, uh, to his people to spread his gospel. And so verse four, those who were scattered preached the word wherever they went. The gospel explodes out of Jerusalem and it goes to a very unlikely place. Verse five, Philip went down to a city in Samaria and proclaimed the Christ there. And now, in the first century world, if you were going to choose a place that it was unlikely 
for the gospel to go and grow and flourish, it would be Samaria. To go preaching in Samaria was the ancient equivalent of a modern-day Israelite going to the West Bank or the Gaza Strip. The Samaritans were the enemies next door. At 700 years earlier, there had been a united kingdom of Israel under Solomon, but the Samaritans had rebelled against Solomon's son, and they'd set up a rival um, monarchy, a rival kingdom, and worst of all, from the Jewish perspective, a rival religion. They worshipped God in a different way. Uh, Over the generations that followed, later invaders brought other nations and mixed in the people of other nations and religions with the Samaritans. So ultimately what you had in Samaria was sort of um, mixed race, syncretistic, superstitious. They were everything that the Jews stood against and no first century Jew would have dealings with a Samaritan. These were the people who just seemed too hard for the truth of Jesus. You know, the parable of the Good Samaritan that Jesus told, you know that one, one of his most famous parables, it only works because no one would have possibly expected a Samaritan to be the good guy. In Luke 9, Jesus' disciples want to call down fire from heaven to destroy Samaria because they think that's what Jesus would want. You see, no first century Jew would have anything to do with a Samaritan. They were idolatrous, they were hardened And they were the most unlikely people imaginable. And Simon the sorcerer gives us the perfect um, example of what I'm talking about. So just have a look at verse 9 with me. Now for some time, a man named Simon was preaching uh, had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. And there's a bit of a sandwich here because have a look again at verse 11. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with magic. And in the middle of the sandwich, verse 9, the second half, he boasted that he was someone great. And all the people, both high and low, gave their attention and exclaimed, this man is the divine power known as the great power. Now look, um, as 21st century people in Fullwood, probably the idea of magic and sorcery doesn't really captivate our hearts that much. But we know what it is to see people captured by a powerful individual or ideology, amazed by it, captivated. And they look to Simon and they say, this man is what it's all about. This is the man who will solve our problems and the problems of our world. Captivated, idolatrous, far off from God and the gospel. And they seem like the most unlikely people imaginable. And yet, have a look at verse six with me. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he'd said. With shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, and many paralytics and cripples were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Verse 12, when they believed Philip as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even, verse 13, Simon himself believed and was baptized. Do you see, God had promised to reunite the kingdom. God had promised to bring the people back together. And what the religious elite and the temple had failed to do for hundreds of years, God did by his gospel. The most unlikely people imaginable, the Samaritans... 
believed when they heard the good news of Jesus. The gospel is for everywhere without exception. Jesus is in heaven ruling. Heaven is open and so there is no location where Jesus is not king. There is no obstacle too large or place too difficult for the expansion of Jesus' kingdom through the proclamation of his word. The gospel is for everywhere without exception. Now look, I'm not saying that everyone will believe the gospel. We only have to look back to the beginning of the chapter to see hostile opposition. And I'm not saying that God will always authenticate the proclamation of the gospel with signs and wonders. Actually, we see in the Bible that they're very rare. And in verse 6, we see that because they saw the signs and wonders, they all paid close attention to what Philip said. But you see, because Jesus rules and heaven is opened... When people hear the gospel, anyone, anywhere can respond and know God as they trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the thing that's driven Christians to go out and tell the gospel to people in difficult places all over the world. Um, I have a list of um, various people that I pray for. I don't know all of them personally, but I was looking over some of the places that people have gone with the gospel of Jesus. Um, I've got a mate who's um, off planting a church in Arctic Canada, uh, even colder than Sheffield. Uh, I've got a friend at an undisclosed country in North Africa. Uh, It's undisclosed because it's a Muslim country. It's illegal to proclaim the gospel there. Uh, There's a guy who's um, taking uh, the gospel to one of the toughest council estates in Glasgow. Uh, Paul tells me he's keen for some of you to go to Doncaster, of all places. The gospel is for everywhere without exception. There are no boundaries. There is nowhere where the gospel doesn't belong. I wonder, where do you think, deep down, is too hard a place for the gospel to go? Talking to some people, here are some things that have been suggested that um, that people in an honest moment think deep down are too hard. Um, A certain group of my friends, uh, university, the Muslim community and Muslim nations of this world, the LGBT lobby, my office, my school, my family... And I wonder what you would add to that list, that deep down you just think that actually it's just too hard for the gospel. You couldn't even imagine people becoming Christians there. Just here in Acts 8, we see that the gospel is for everywhere with no exceptions. There are no places too hard, no boundaries too difficult. Jesus rules on heaven's throne and anyone can know him through the gospel. As we think about Manchester, and maybe we think of the Islamic communities of this country or of this world. Uh, maybe we think of other places that just seem too hard. Jesus is enthroned. Heaven is open. And we've got to believe that the gospel is for everywhere. There is nowhere that the gospel cannot triumph as people turn to God to know him. Secondly, we see that the gospel is for everyone without distinction. A gospel for everyone without distinction. Uh, Look at verse 14 with me. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. When they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon any of them. 
They'd simply been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now look, this is a huge step here in Acts chapter 8. Before this, the only Christians have been people in Jerusalem, and the only Christians we've been told about have all been Jewish. And here, the gospel is exploding out to Samaria of all places. And so, I guess, as we might expect, um, two of the apostles, Peter and John, those um, witnesses of the risen Jesus and leaders of the church, are sent out to um, check out what's going on. They're here to authenticate it and validate it. Actually, it's not something that they really do again in Acts. But here they're there to see whether what's going on is really genuine and is really of God. And while they're there, we're told again and again in that paragraph, the Samaritans received the Holy Spirit. That great sign of being a Christian No matter how unlikely they might have seemed, they now had God dwelling in them by his spirit. You know, the um, the authorities in the temple, the temple itself had said again and again, come in to us to be near God. But now Jesus is enthroned, heaven is open, and so there are no special places and no special people. When they believe in Jesus, they receive the spirit. God is close to them as they respond to the gospel. How much closer could he be than dwelling in them by the Spirit? And so there are no second-class Christians. I wonder if you've ever had that feeling of being sort of slightly second-class somewhere. Um, I uh, went to visit a friend at his um, college in Oxford once. They were having a big sort of formal meal, and I was invited along. Um, If you just just sort of picture one of those dinner scenes from Harry Potter, and that'll sort of get you in the room. And um, everyone who's there is wearing one of these sort of academic gowns, um, apart from me, obviously. I'm just just the guest. And um, he had to tell about three different members of staff. Uh, No, it's okay. He's with me. He's invited You know, um, I was welcome there, I was a guest, I was invited, but it was very obvious that I didn't really belong. You know, I was second class, everyone else has a gown and um, I'm just there in a shirt or whatever. And I wonder if you've had that feeling of um, feeling second class somewhere. Uh, The temple had been full of distinctions between people. You had the priests closest to the place where God dwelt, then you had the Jewish people, and then you had the court of the Gentiles and Samaritans and people like that who'd come to God. And here we see that the gospel breaks down all of those barriers. It's for everyone without distinction, even Samaritans receive the Holy Spirit, God dwelling in them, God close to them. Uh, I I just want to speak for a moment to one misunderstanding that people have sometimes had of this passage in in some churches particularly. Um, They see Acts chapter 8 as a sort of a model for Christian initiation, something that's true of every Christian, that um, you have two levels for a Christian. Some people believe in Jesus, and then at some time later they're sort of baptized in the Holy Spirit and so there's a two, two levels to Christianity, two stages. There's the, the ordinary Christian and then the really keen people who've been baptized in the Spirit. Now, I don't think that's what Acts 8 is teaching because all through the book of Acts, we see again and again that when people believe the gospel, they receive the Holy Spirit. Uh, you don't have to turn back to it, but in Acts 2, 
um, Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Peter establishes this as the normal pattern. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Uh, we see it again and again in Acts. Um, Acts 8 is unusual. And actually, Luke flags up for us how unusual it is. Verse 15, when they arrived, they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon them. You know, he's using a lot of ink there to point out that this is an unusual, a unique time, really, because here, for the first time, the gospel is breaking out beyond Jerusalem. And the apostles come, and God demonstrates in a very visible way as they receive the Spirit that there are no distinctions For another reference to look at, Paul says in Romans 8 verse 9, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they don't belong to Christ. You see, the New Testament is very clear that every Christian receives the spirit of God. And here, it attests to the fact that the Samaritans are on an equal footing as believers. It's ironic that that sort of two-stage vision of what it means to be a Christian actually creates distinctions between believers when Acts 8 says that there are none, even Samaritans receive the Spirit. Just think about that for a moment. It might be that you have done something or had something done to you, and deep down in your heart it makes you wonder, could God really accept someone like me? If you're a student, maybe there's some memory of something during Freshers' Week, and it just makes you doubt, do I really belong here? It might be that you look at your messy family or your difficult background and then you look at the sort of neat and well-turned-out Christian person in the pew next to you and you feel second class. Do I really belong here? The gospel is for everyone with no distinctions. Even Samaritans, when they believed the gospel, God was close to them. He came and dwelt in them by his Holy Spirit. Do we believe that anyone, whatever they have done, even a terrorist, if they believe the gospel, can be forgiven by God and know God's presence with them on an equal footing to every believer in this building? The gospel is for everyone without distinction, even Samaritans. And then finally, we see here that the gospel claims everything without negotiation. The gospel claims everything without negotiation. Look at verse 18 with me for a moment. Uh, When Simon saw that the spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, May your money perish with you because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he'll forgive you for having such a thought in your heart for I see that you're full of bitterness and captive to sin. Here is Simon, he's a powerful man, everyone thinks that he is great, and when he sees what the gospel does, when he sees what it achieves, well, he wants to buy the franchise for his local area. He offers the money to be able to do what the gospel is able to do. 
here is someone who has an existing view of the world, he has his own agenda and ideas, and he wants to take Jesus and slot him in as part of his program to make him great. Now, I'm not much of a chef, uh, maybe you are, but we've got a, a row of cookbooks in our home, uh, and when we think of a new kind of cookery that we'd like to add to the repertoire, um, we'll just buy a new cookbook, we'll slot it in next to the other ones, and maybe it'll have a handful of recipes that will be added to what we cook. And uh, if you're ever invited around for dinner, you'd better pray that it's Jess who's cooking them. But... Um, Here is Philip who has exactly that sort of attitude to the gospel of the Lord Jesus. You know, he's got his existing magic and he's got the things that are making him look great in life and he just wants to slot the gospel in next to what he has already to add what the gospel can do to his existing agenda and program. And you see, Jesus doesn't come and he doesn't send out a gospel to be negotiated with. Uh, Jesus is in heaven. Heaven is open. Jesus rules, but that means that the gift of God's forgiveness and the gift of God's presence by his spirit, well, it comes to those who accept Jesus as their king. The gospel is not a message of self-help or advice. It's not something to add to our plans or agenda for life. It comes to call us, well, verse 22, Peter says to Simon, repent of this wickedness and to repent really means to change your mind to change your worldview to change your ideology and aims and agenda to bow the knee to Jesus as king as the one who can forgive you rescue you from the judgment to come and to let him direct your life and maybe you've had this experience when you're having people around for dinner where um, uh, the house is in a sort of state of semi-carnage and um, people are coming in not too long. There's not time to really tidy things properly. And so you gather up all of the things from the sort of rooms you know people will go in and shove them in your spare room and maybe your bedroom or one or two other places until the door can barely close. And then when the guests come, you just only let them in the rooms that look tidy and maybe say something like, oh, I'm sorry, the house is um, such a mess at the moment to make yourself um, look like it's normally even better. But you see, the gospel... It can't be like that. It can't be that we have the different rooms of our lives and Jesus is allowed to come in and be Lord of the the one marked family or church. But you know, there are other ones upstairs marked things like career or ambition or people thinking that I am a great one and Jesus is not allowed to be Lord of those ones. They're locked. Now, if Jesus is to be Lord, every room must be open. He doesn't come to negotiate with our agenda or help us achieve our goals. He comes to turn our life around, to forgive us and give us the presence of God, but only if we'll bow the knee. And so Peter says to Philip, repent of this wickedness. And here we have really the limits on the forgiveness of God and his presence through the gospel It's a gospel that is for everywhere without exception and for everyone without distinction, but only those who will repent, those who will let Jesus be Lord. He claims everything without negotiation. Have we repented? 
And listen, on a morning like this, as we look back on a week where there's been great tragedy just down the road in Manchester and um, overseas as well, Coptic Christians who, who we mustn't forget, and in other places in the world as well, it's easy for us to um, think that we have a gospel that is small and that's only for some people and only for some places and a gospel that only claims some parts of some people's lives. And Acts 8 is here to remind us, even as you think about the callous, hard-hearted disregard for human life of the terrorist, even as you think about the place in the world where it seems like there are no Christians at all, even as you think about your office or the university, Jesus rules, heaven is open, and anyone can know God through the gospel. It's a gospel for everywhere and everyone who will repent and believe. I'm going to pray that we would believe that even this morning. Our Lord God, what a gospel. Help us as we think about those that we know and those that we see through the media and other means. Help us to have confidence in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, even today. Amen.